We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. One was the greatest hitter in the history of baseball, the last player to bat over 400 in a season and a 19-time All-Star. The other was the first American to orbit the Earth. He made the first supersonic transcontinental flight across the U.S. and eventually would become a U.S. senator. One was loud and brash and not shy about profanity. The other rarely raised his voice. Normally, you wouldn't think they would have much in common, but you'd be wrong. Both were marine aviators who flew together in combat. The unlikely, unusual, and unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams is a subject of a new book by Adam Lazarus called The Wingmen. Adam enjoys telling the stories of iconic figures in American history, and he's the author of four other books in the sports vein. Adam, welcome to American Warrior Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. Adam, did you play sports as a, a younger man? Or Sure, yeah. I was. Uh, 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 baseball was my first love as a kid, and then kind of, Realized I wasn't going to play center field for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but I, I managed, you know, I played through high school. I played in football in college. So, yeah, I have a pretty strong sports background. So is that what led you into, into sports journalism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, somewhere along the lines, someone said to me, write what you're passionate about. And I know sports and, I, and I'm passionate about sports. So I think it was kind of a natural segue into writing about athletes that I'd grown up and, and watched and loved and rooted for. Now, this is obviously a, a takeoff of that since I never saw Ted Williams play. But, um, yeah, that's kind of been my, my background has been writing sports ever since I put pen to paper. And your other four books, if I recall, three of them are football-related and one is golf, or am I getting that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Three mid-'80s, early-'90s NFL books, really about three different dynasties of the NFL, those eras. The Giant, there's a Giants-Bills Super Bowl book. There's uh, the Redskins Super Bowl era Joe Gibbs Redskins teams, and then the Joe Montana Steve Young 49ers. And then I did a book on the U.S. Open Golf Championship in 1973 that Johnny Miller won, and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, Lee Trevino were all contenders at the end. And uh, yeah, you, you you got it right. Sports is sort of what I know, and I'm always looking for great sports stories. And this book, The Wingmen, is certainly a sports story, but it's about a lot more than well, I was just going to say, we right now we've got some listeners across the country that are scratching their heads and saying, you know, why does BBG have a, a sports guy on American Warrior Radio? But that precisely is a point. The Wingman was just released. I just finished it a couple weeks ago. It's a great read. And, folks, you can find more about it at adamlazarusbooks.com. Lazarus is spelled L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. Both John Glenn and Ted Williams served during the Second World War, which a lot of folks now, if they know the story, they think about Korea. But Glenn earned two distinguished flying crosses and 10 air medals. Pretty impressive start. Yeah, he was born to be a pilot. From the age of five or so, he wanted to be a pilot. And even before World War II broke out, he got his pilot, civilian's pilot's license. Uh, and then once everybody was enlisting or, or joining the, the service after Pearl Harbor, he was a natural fit for He actually joined the Army Air Corps first. And they never called him back, so he went back a couple weeks later, signed up with the Navy Aviation Cadet Program, and, and within time he was training and got his wings and went over to the Pacific and flew, I think, 57 combat missions over in the Pacific, very well decorated. And was uh, after he returned from the war, became a career Marine. It was pretty clear to everybody who knew him that he was built for the Marines. He was built to be a lifer in the, in the military. 
And um, yeah, he, you mentioned everybody knows about his service in Korea. He wasn't supposed to go to Korea. No one gave him. He did not receive any orders. He kept getting transfers to different posts that weren't, you know, were stateside, weren't combat posts. And after a while, he, he realized that his talents were being wasted, and he wrote multiple letters to his superiors. He was at Quantico at the time, serving on the commandant staff, and he begged them to send him to Korea. And eventually, his orders, after being reprimanded for bothering his superiors <laughs> so much, he received orders and was shipped out to Korea in, in early 1953, which is where he met Ted Williams. Well, now, Ted's start was a little more rocky. I mean, obviously, he was playing baseball, playing baseball very well, getting paid very well to play baseball. One thing that kind of throughout the book, Adam, it, it breaks my heart is all the controversies surrounding, seems like, every aspect of, of Ted Williams' life, particularly his adult life, on up to literally after his death. So tell us about what happened when he got the first draft notice. Well, you know, you're right that he was surrounded by controversy ever since he became up to the big leagues and even after he died. And his service in World War II was actually surrounded by controversy. He was drafted just like everybody else, and he applied for 3A status to support his mother. His mother, you know, needed financial support, and he was eventually granted a deferment. But then after a while, he knew he had to go, so he went in, and he only served stateside. He had served at Pensacola mostly as a Navy aviator instructor. Uh, so he didn't serve stateside, but he stayed in the Marine Corps uh, with what was called the Volunteer Reserves. And he was technically still a part of the Marine Corps, but didn't have to do any kind of training missions on the side. He got to go back and play baseball right after the war ended. Right after the war ended, he came back and won the MVP and led the Red Sox to the World Series. So he wasn't really doing anything for the Marine Corps, but he was still attached. After a while, it got promotions. He was promoted to first lieutenant, and he stayed in, got his pay grade raise, and was promoted to captain. And right around that time, the Korean War breaks out. And these volunteer reservists, after the Korean War broke out, they could resign their commission at any time, but a lot of them liked their Marine Corps status. And once the Korean War broke out, they were no longer allowed to resign their commission. And uh, in late 1951, early 1952, Ted Williams got a letter sent to his the offices at Fenway Park, or the home of the Boston Red Sox, saying you've been reactivated and you're going to serve 17 months minimum in combat. It wasn't quite that specific, but uh, that's, that's what the, his orders were. It was a surprise. In the book, you talk about how a three-in-the-morning phone call that a certain military officer received from a general saying, do you know who you just drafted? And he pretty much said, yeah, some guy named Ted Williams, and I got the phone, basically. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great story, and um, the part that I kind of knew was fitting for this book, and I knew how this book would kind of work, the, the man who actually authorized the reactivation of Ted Williams in 1951, early 1952, uh, was a major named Major Bob Conley. He was actually John Glenn's fraternity brother and college football teammate, and he sends, gets this file across his desk that says, you know, he's going through candidate files. They had to start bringing in more bodies because the war was taking a lot longer than they thought. They were reactivating guys left and right. And one of the files came across his desk was Williams, Theodore S., and he didn't know who that was. He must not have been a big baseball fan. And it turns out that was Ted Williams. But the file served in the Navy during World War II. It was a great instructor at Pensacola, had passed all his medical exams, passed all the other exams and, and certifications that he needed to be a flight, to be a pilot. And they said, okay, well, this guy seems fit for duty. Let's send him his reactivation orders. And it turned out it was Ted Williams. And a couple of days later, uh, the superior called him and chewed him out over the phone saying, did you know that you just reactivated Ted Williams, the biggest baseball player in America, one of the biggest celebrities in 
professional sports. And I've got to give Major Bob Conley his respect for saying, yes, okay, he's Ted Williams, but he's going to war because we need bodies and he's certified and he's uh, eligible, so we're not going to play favorites. And I think that's kind of how the story propelled because once it got in the news that he had been reactivated, they couldn't say, oh, we made a mistake. Then it would look like they were playing favorites. Adam, we got just about a minute before the next break, but I, when we come back, I want to talk about the other thing I took from your book is Ted was not always treated fairly. I mean, it seems like he was one of those guys, you either loved him or you hated him, and there wasn't a lot of middle ground. But on this situation with, with the draft and service in the military, uh, how many other pro baseball players were serving as well? I think there was only three in his cadet class. Well, in, in for for World War II, obviously everybody served. Hank Greenberg and Joe DiMaggio went to service. No, they didn't all fight in combat. Heller served in a Navy um, aircraft carrier, I think. Everybody went for World War II. But you're right. When Korea broke out, very few active major league ball players were sent. There were a few. Uh, Jerry Coleman, who was a famous player for the Yankees, served in a Marine Corps fighter squadron. Uh, another ball player named Lloyd Merriman served in a fighter squadron in the same sister squadron, Ted Williams. But you're right. It was very unusual for a celebrity of his status to be called back into service. And I don't really think any other ball players or celebrities, movie stars, anything like that, were called into Army or Navy or Marine Corps. Those are the only ones that I really found. Well, the other thing that comes through, too, is obviously he was not happy about that, but he knew he was a patriot and he decided to do his duty. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Adam Lazarus. We'll be right back in just a few seconds after these messages. Hey, listen, if you enjoy this show, check out the Feedspot Veteran Podcast. We're very proud to be ranked number two in their top 100 veteran podcast. So if you enjoy this kind of content, check out Feedspot, and I'm sure you'll find lots of other stuff to listen to. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Adam Lazarus. He's got a great new book out called The Wingmen. should be on your bookshelves now. It was just released. You can learn more. Visit adamlazarusbooks.com. Lazarus is spelled L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. Adam, we're talking about Ted Williams, and he got drafted, returned. I reactivated, I guess is the technical word, to service in the Korean War. And you just think about some practical things. I mean, he was earning about $100,000 as a pro baseball player, and now he's earning $6,000, $6,500 in the Marines, in fairness. And, I mean, we're talking 1950s $100,000, too. So we're talking a big, big amount of cash. Yeah, uh, he was not shy about telling that through the press. He was not happy about being recalled. And he said all the right things to the press. You know, every reporter who saw him from the moment he was reactivated to the time he left the States, was asking him about it, and he said all the right things. And there's one quote that's like, "If Uncle Sam wants me, I'm I'm there." But he was chewing behind the scenes. He, he did everything he could to get out of it. He apparently hired some lawyers to get him out and say, "You know, you're costing me all my prime years of earning." Exactly like you said, he was making a hundred thousand dollars, and he was going to be whatever that is twenty twenty times less money. And plus, it, that doesn't even count take into account you know his endorsements. So he was not happy about it, and he did what he could to get out of it. But after a while, it became pretty clear to me from what I read that he, he didn't want to shirk his duty, and he knew there was no fighting it anymore after a while. And it seemed like he was allowed to apply for or ask for or request more of a safe death job, maybe not even go abroad. But he didn't want to do that. I think he realized, first of all, he didn't serve in World War II in, in combat, and I think he knew that he had been fortunate not to go abroad for World War II. 
So I think when Korea came around, he jumped at the chance to serve his country. And he also enjoyed the opportunity to fly jets. Remember, this is the early 1950s. This is the beginning of the jet age. Jets were, you know, a dream option for pilots who had flown the propeller planes, didn't go as fast and weren't as sophisticated. And when it became clear that he was going to be flying the jet, I think he was really intrigued by that. And if you know anything about Ted Williams, you know that he was an absolute perfectionist, driven beyond anyone's imagination to succeed and excel. And I think that was one of the things that appealed to him was learning how to fly the jet and master the jet and being one of those fighter pilots that be like a John Glenn. Yeah. And everybody who's read his, his book about batting knows that. I mean, the guy wrote it like a quantum physics book. What? Um, so there was, you know, you talk about endorsements. I don't know if this, if I recall, it was the Second World War. But when this kerfuffle was going on about he was you know, supposedly a draft dodger, he lost the endorsement from, I think it was Quaker Oats. Yeah. And, and this says something about Ted Williams. He swore he would never eat their product again the rest of his life. And he never did. I mean, he was a pretty much a you're with me or against me, you know, this is right and this is wrong. But there was one other character that enters the book, uh, young, I guess he was he a senator, some guy nobody ever heard of named uh, John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, John Kennedy was supposed, this is all comes from Ted Williams' autobiography. So someone, either he, one of his people approached, he was a congressman at the time, he was running for the Senate. This is, again, 1952, 1953. He asked for help from John Kennedy to try to get him out of the, the service he had been reattached to the Marine Corps, and it never panned out. And I'm not sure that's the only reason why Ted Williams didn't really go along with the Kennedy family. There seems to be some other indications along the way, but that that didn't help either. That um, he did a lot for a lot of people. He asked for some favors, get me out of the service, and it didn't pan out. You know, what's interesting to me is when I just started reading your book, and having been played baseball myself, I was thinking about you know just the the good hand eye coordination it takes to to hit a ball moving at 90 or more miles an hour or, you know, a curve or something else dropping with a little thin piece of wood, that takes a certain skill. And I could see that directly translating into being a fighter pilot. And, you know, just like they describe uh, young men who are avid hunters, uh, you know, pheasant hunters or, or dove hunters mm-hmm. who knew to lead the target, became great aerial gunnery people. And, and Williams was a pretty darn good pilot. Yeah, you know, I want to—I don't mean to disparage Ted Williams. I have a lot of great things to say about him in the book. And like you said earlier, you know, there were people who absolutely hated him, and there were people who still revere him, you know, 80 years after he hit 406. The the one thing I want to say about Ted Williams' military service is it is a little bit, from what I gathered, was a little bit blown out of proportion how great a pilot he was. From what I understand was— you know, you mentioned the hand-eye coordination. When he flew propeller planes, he mostly flew the, the Corsair, which is the main military plane during World War II that I think probably a lot of your listeners know about. He was just a natural with the, with the Corsair. Everything from flying it to manning the six-wing guns, he just was gifted as anybody. And it probably had to do with his legendary eyesight and his hand-eye coordination. And he was also a tremendous hunter, which a lot of people probably know. But when he gets to the jets that I mentioned earlier, that they began flying jets in Korea, he had no experience with jets. He had very little retraining time. He gets called back in January. He's at a military base in in May. He doesn't really begin flying until June. And by January, he's shipped off to Korea. So he did not have a lot of experience flying the jets. And he, even John Glenn said this later, that he made mistakes with the plane because he had no experience. There's a famous quote about Ted Williams that I know Bobby Knight, his friend, the Indiana basketball coach, once said that I think was repeated by other people. He, they said something like, Ted Williams is the only person who was 
the greatest in the history of the world at three things, hitting a baseball, fishing, and flying a combat plane. Well, the last one is certainly not true. You see, there were many, many other great pilots, but John Glenn was certainly a better pilot than Ted Williams. So I think when people talk about that, his, his skills, as, and as, particularly as a jet pilot, were a little bit overblown. Okay. But, you know, you give him the credit for his service, and he did, he did survive 38 missions. He had two crash landings, and his worst crash landing, he only really survived because of his own, you know, quick thinking and skill. But I, he was not a great, great jet pilot. So you remind me now of the, uh, what was the squadron, the, the Marine squadron they were both in? VMF-311, which okay. is uh, part of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, uh, part of the 33rd Marine Aircraft Group. And their, their squadron was about 40 pilots rotating in and out. But when John Glenn and Ted Williams were there, about 40 pilots, and they were based at what's called K-3. It was a, sort of the southeastern tip of South Korea. And, uh, yeah, they were there together from February to late June 1953. We had a, a gentleman on recently, Adam, who also flew the F-9F Panther in Korea, and he single-handedly tangled with seven MiGs and shot down four of them. And he returned to his carrier. There's like 200 holes in his plane. But because the MiG pilots were Russian, the whole thing was buried. And he didn't talk about it. You know, he kept the secret for 50 years. But from what he related to me, the F-9F was not really a dogfighter. And you described it. The missions that this Marine squadron flew mostly were, were blow and go. Uh, as you call them, ground support missions. Yeah, that was the, the squadron they were in. Their job was to drop bombs on roads and uh, tanks, you know, uh, and enemy ground troops and bomb supply shelters and infantry training schools. They didn't engage in aerial com combat missions. Uh, now John Glenn later, when he goes off to join the Air Force on a temporary assignment during the Korean War, at the end of the Korean War, certainly engaged with MiGs uh, on a daily basis. But the squadron they were in, these Marine Corps pilots, they were there for support of the ground troops, and that was mostly bombing uh, attack areas in the north uh, across the 38th parallel. So, uh, yeah, John Glenn and Ted Williams, when they were with the Marine Corps, didn't engage MiGs or any kind of aerial combat. Their missions, uh, John Glenn actually said this in a letter home to his wife one day, was that he was so proud to be there supporting the ground troops who, you know, were the most vulnerable. They were up in, in planes and pretty much safe away from, from ground fire, except for occasional incidents. But all those Marines who were on the ground were in peril every minute they were over there. Adam, when we come back, I want to talk more about both their experiences there in Korea. I mean, they're both, you know, Ted Williams was already a legend, and, and John Glenn was rapidly becoming a legend. So I want to talk more about that when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, we're discussing the book, The Wingman, with the author, Adam Lazarus. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking about the unusual and unbreakable friendship between astronaut John Glenn and the famous baseball player, Ted Williams. Both men flew as Marines in Korea, uh, saw combat in Korea. And we're talking, Adam, for the break about these missions, mostly ground attack missions. John Glenn, who I think there's no argument now particularly that was... When you talk about the pantheon of great pilots, Glenn was certainly ranked among those. But he developed this habit of you're supposed to go in, drop your bombs, and, and get the heck out uh, before mm -hmm. the MiGs show up. Well, he developed this habit of coming around after a bombing run and looking for more targets to engage, which probably didn't make him a very popular guy for folks to fly with. No, that's exactly right. I was very, very fortunate that three pilots who flew with John Glenn and Ted Williams 
in the Korean War, you know, you're talking 70 years ago, are still alive. And I was able to interview them. And one of them <laughs> was not shy about saying how much he hated flying with John Blood because he would do his mission and he would do everything he was supposed to. And his wingman, I'm sure your, your listeners know that the wingman follows the leader and there's always these groups of two. John Glenn was usually the leader because he was a career Marine and he would have a wingman who was usually much more inexperienced on his wing. And he would follow him into every run. The wingman would follow right behind and do the exact same thing. And John Glenn would have these wingmen, many of whom were either really inexperienced, you know, older guys like Ted Williams, who had just come back and because they were volunteer reserves or very, very young pilots in their early 20s. And they did not like flying with him because he would take these extra chances. And as I mentioned earlier, that John Glenn was desperate to serve in the Korean War, that he had begged his superiors. He felt that he was going to, once he finally got over there, he was going to take it, you know, make full go of everything that he had. And he even said, I wasn't quite intent on winning the war by myself, but it was close. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he would do, you know, come in, drop his bombs, and then come around and use his cannons to fire at, you know, individual small arms rifle firemen on the ground, which was just really not done. And it, it really angered his wingmen, his young reservist recall wingmen. It, it irritated his well, superiors. And, but it was John Glenn. And, you know, everything about John Glenn, he, he was the upstanding and the most, the most integrity of, of any person I've really ever written about. But he was stubborn and he was, you know, determined to do whatever he thought was right. And that was the, the only negative thing I heard about John Glenn was his wingmen saying that they just hated flying with him. Well, and Glenn picked his wingmen, not the other way around. Now, Ted Williams flew, as best I can tell from your book, at least eight missions as John Glenn's wingman. And do you know, I mean, did he like that? I mean, I almost kind of get the impression of Williams like, look, if I'm going to do something, I want to do it with the very best person possible, particularly when you're going into combat. You want somebody who really knows the ropes if you're going to be flying on their wings. So... Was that sort of William's attitude? I, that's my that's the way I always interpret it. Again, you're right that that John Glenn was actually the first he came over. He was the assistant operations officer, and not long after that, he was made operations officer. And one of his primary duties was to assign wingmen to leaders. And I think after a while, when it became clear, hey, don't assign me to you again from some of the other pilots, he he assigned Ted Williams, and Ted Williams seemed to be eager to do it. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. Is that it wasn't that Ted Williams wanted to lean on John Glenn because he knew he was a great pilot and he would keep him out of trouble. I think Ted Williams felt he could learn a lot flying with John Glenn. He would experience a lot. It would make him a better pilot. And that was one of the reasons that they were a good match, that Glenn didn't have that many options because he had sort of irritated so many guys with his antics in the air. And Ted Williams was, sure, I'll fly with you the best. You know, I, I think that it's something that I sort of hint at in the book, that they shared this sensibility of perfectionism and obsession with details. And I think they clicked over that. John Glenn was not a major celebrity superstar yet. He was This is 10 years before he goes to space. Old. But I think Ted Williams recognized that this guy's special. And he even said that when he, there's a quote in the book. And he has the hindsight of having said it long after John Glenn became an astronaut. But he says that he saw this guy. I mean, he got over to Korea and they were doing a big squadron meeting. He saw this guy on the other side of the room giving a briefing. And he said, that guy right there, he had the right stuff. And he was talking about John Glenn. So I think there was just natural respect for each other from the moment they met. And it certainly, if you pick up the book and read it, you'll see it continued until the day Ted Williams died. Adam, I pulled a couple of the missions you mentioned in your book out. The, the first one that struck me was this mission on February 16th where Ted Williams became a member of the, you call it the, the hole-in-one club. I didn't know that such a thing existed, but I got it now after the book. And he was hit by enemy fire, and basically he, he lost all his hydraulics. 
all electrical power, which it's awful hard to fly a plane without hydraulics or, or stop one. He didn't want to eject, though, because, well, at the time, I guess his radio was out, so he didn't know the aircraft was on fire. But he didn't want to eject because he wanted to return to play baseball. And he knew that an ejection for someone particularly his size would maybe not come out so well. Well, that's part of it, certainly. Apparently, a rumor had been going around, Ted Williams is very tall, he was six foot three, that some similarly tall Navy aviator had ejected for whatever reason. And he, Ted Williams said that it cut off his legs. I don't know if that meant they actually cut off or they just broke or whatever. But he had heard that, and I think he was just terrified to hear that. Because he was time, he's only 33 years old, and he told the press he didn't know if he would ever play baseball again. But I think he thought, if, if I do survive this war, I definitely want to come back to play baseball. And he knew that the chances of doing so, if he'd broken both his legs in an airplane ejection, were going to be much lower. So that was part of the reason he stayed in the plane. The other part was when his plane becomes leaking all the hydraulics and the electricals out and the radios out, he's at least 100 miles north of the bomb line in Korea. And if he ejected his plane, he very easily could have been, you know, captured. And they had contingencies for guys getting captured. If you read the book, you'll see that Ted Williams had some uh, curious takes on, on the contingencies. But I don't think he wanted to even risk the opportunity of landing in North Korea and being captured. Could you imagine? If Ted Williams had been a prisoner of war during the Korean War, what that would have been like, you know, just think of, I think we think of like Brittany Griner being prisoner over in Russia. Could you imagine Ted Williams being captured by the North Koreans in the Korean War? That would approve that general right. <laughs> yeah. so now, it, the other thing that interesting is that the official word was always, you know, over here, he's just another pilot. If I got it right after he crash landed his plane and survived and jumped out, it wasn't long before a colonel asked for his autograph. That's right. That, there's a great story. One of the pilots told that he gets out of the plane, which the plane, there's a picture of the plane in the book, completely destroyed. It was on fire when he crash landed it. The only reason it didn't burn up is because they covered it in flame retardant foam. Yeah, he was covered in smoke from being in, and he had busted his ankle ramming on the rudder pedals. Uh, and he ran out of the plane on a bum ankle. Uh, and while he's doing that, there's this story that one of the pilots told that a, a green car pulled up, and an officer got out and handed him a piece of paper, and Ted Williams signed it and handed it back. And he said, what did that guy come up to you? And he, it was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force that, that wanted his autograph. You're right. I, everybody said the right things about him not getting special treatment from the major who recalled him, said he's just another guy going to service. And his commanding officer over in Korea even said, uh, you know, he's just another pilot. But there were people falling all over themselves to talk to him. You know, I am a drink at the officers' club. Uh, there were reporters there frequently, which I don't know how that happened, but many reporters managed to make their way over to the base and interview him for magazine pieces. But he still got, in some respects, preferential treatment. And I will say there were pilots who didn't like Ted Williams in his squadron, and I think that was one of the reasons was they could see that he was still getting special treatment, even that he wasn't. You know, getting his $100,000 a year contract and living in a luxurious apartment in Boston. Adam, we got just about a minute for the next break. You introduced me to something new in your book that I'd never heard of before, and I probably will mispronounce this, Kroindiking? Well, yes. I saw it written two different ways, Kroindiking or Krondiking. And, and John Glenn even pronounced it differently a couple times, so I'm not sure. It was basically the pilots, you know, they had a lot of downtime over there. And they threw little chunks of ground at each other, and they threw it at each other's huts, each other's quarters, which um, the top of their quarters, their huts over there are three, and the squadron were made of tin. So if you threw rocks at the guy's top of his hut when he was sleeping, you woke him up, and it was, you know, how they entertained themselves over there before before everybody had a computer or an iPad or something, I guess. And it was kind of the, one of the pranks they did. 
and John Glenn used to talk about, he, he, he talked about how obviously Ted Williams was a great baseball player, so he could throw the rocks really well, but he also had huge hands, and he could hold a bunch of these little pebbles. I think if you threw a rock at one of your squadron mates, you'd probably spend some time reprimanded. But it was sort of playful playful games that they, they played over there. Obviously, kind of a male bonding thing, I think. And it's called throwing diking, yes. Adam, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I know better than to get into a rock fire with a Major League Baseball player. That just doesn't sound like it's going to end well. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with more with Adam Lazarus, the author of The Ringmen's to Ground. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking about the Adam Lattaris' new book called The Wingman. It tells the story of the unlikely, unusual, and unbreakable friendship between John Glenn and the famous baseball player Ted Williams. Adam, it's interesting to me that in the book you talk about how when, when John Glenn describes when he really came to know Ted Williams, and they were, I think they were on leave in Japan, some Japanese kid recognized him because they're big baseball fans. And so he played a sort of fake shadow baseball game with these kids. And Glenn was observing. He said, now, that's that's the real man. That's the kind of guy I can respect. Yeah, I think that was something that was a really poignant story. John Glenn actually told that story. He had a public memorial at Fenway Park. And John Glenn was one of the speakers. And he told this story, which I don't think anyone had ever heard before. I don't think he had ever told it publicly before. Uh, it was really a, a great story, and if you know anything about Ted Williams beyond the the baseball and the fact that he was kind of a gruff guy, you know, they cared a lot about children, and particularly sick children. He was very, very active in the Jimmy Fund, which is the Boston Children's Cancer Research Foundation. He visited sick children in the hospital all the time, and he always insisted that there were no reporters or cameramen there. Um, and I think John Glenn caught a glimpse of that when he was over in Korea, that he, these boys that run him down and, and said, you know, are you Ted Williams? They didn't, no one spoke any Japanese and these kids didn't speak English, but they were able to communicate. And Ted Williams really gave those kids a, you know, a, a story they could tell for the rest of their lives. And I think John Glenn took note of that. And especially, you know, he told that story 50 years later at Ted Williams public memorial. He did start to show a different side of him. And, and John Glenn saw that. And I, I think it was one of the things that he really respected about him. And just as a side note, you know, I mentioned that I let guys were falling all over themselves to shake Ted Williams' hand or, you know, talk to him. The, the colonel got out of the, the car and asked for his autograph. John Glenn wasn't impressed by that. And it, it wasn't he wasn't jealous or irritated by that. I don't think he was a big baseball fan, so I don't think he was a big Ted Williams, the baseball player fan. But quickly he became a fan of Ted Williams, the man. Adam, well, I don't want to give too much of the book away. One of the missions that I think they flew together, John Glenn with Ted Williams as a wingman, was kind of unusual in that on this mission, Ted Williams was almost shot down by a rock. And uh, that's, that's an unusual story, too, so people need to, need to read your book to look that up. Let's talk about post-war real quick, Adam. You know, Williams did return to baseball. He had so, so a few rough times, but... He was still the oldest man to lead Major League Baseball in batting average at the age of 39. That's that's still an accomplishment. Yeah, he actually had a tremendous season, the very short season. He came back in 
early August. He was back in the States, and he had about six weeks of playing, and he had 13 home runs in 40 games, which is really remarkable. But he, after over time, he, he, he settled back in, and he was easily, you know, the top three hitters in baseball at the time. You mentioned him in 1957. He hit 388. He almost hit 400 again. He should have won the MVP. The next year, he was 40, and he won another batting title. He was just, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a whole baseball discussion, but I still believe he was the greatest hitter that ever lived. And he certainly showed it. His numbers, even after Korea, so after he had served in the Second War, he was into his mid to late 30s, developed some hearing problems from his time in Korea. He still hit 340, I think uh, 180 home runs or something like that. So he seemed pretty seamlessly settled back into baseball. Well, Adam, I, I got to honestly, I, you know, Batting 400 isn't that impressive to me. I share with you, I, I you know, had a 500 batting average my junior year and playing varsity baseball in high school. The truth is I was injured. I only played two games. I only got two at-bats. I got one hit, and I struck out once. But the yearbook listed me as having a 500 batting average, so I'm pretty, pretty proud of that. Um, Glenn, of course, goes his own way. He, he flew the first transcontinental supersonic flight. He was the first American as part of the Mercury program to orbit the Earth and then served in the Senate for 24 years and even made a run at, at president, even though he and Ted were, were lifelong friends, they didn't stay in touch on a regular basis, but, you know, a lot of telegrams, a lot of cards and stuff. Th that bond never never weakened, even though when it came to politics, Glenn and Williams were on complete opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah, the, they they talked politics, and whatever they did, it was really intense. As you said, Ted Williams was very conservative, strong Republican. He was a big supporter Richard Nixon, was actually pretty good friends with Richard Nixon, eventually helped get George H.W. Bush uh, elected. He helped George W. Bush get elected in, in the primary. So politics was a big part of his life and Republican politics. And John Glenn was a Democratic senator. So they, they had these complete different views on politics and morality and, and family and all those things. But they do have this period where John Glenn is running for president and Ted Williams, someone asks him to support him, you know, give a you know, a tepid endorsement in the Massachusetts primary, and Ted Williams wouldn't do it. And I don't think they really had any kind of falling out over that. There's no indication of that. One of Glenn's staffers told me that he was pretty hurt by that. But uh, they pretty much put that to bed after a while. And really in their later years, when they're in their 70s and both men are semi-retired in some sense, they really reconnected and spent a lot of time together. And I think it was a really meaningful relationship for both. John Glenn went back to space in 1998. He was 77 years old. He begged these people at NASA to send him back to space, and after a while, they finally uh, agreed to it. One of the people who was there was Ted Williams, who was in a wheelchair, was in pretty bad shape health-wise, but John Glenn personally came to his house in Florida and said, I want you to be there, and, and Ted Williams, uh, despite all of his health problems, said, you bet I'll be there, and it was a, it was a really an important moment. It's one of the reasons why this book really made sense to me was, the, yes, they served together in Korea, and they had this relationship, and they served missions together, but uh, when they're old and sort of, uh, retirees in Florida, they're, they're still close and still friends. Adam, you know, coming back to that endorsement question, uh, to me, what that says, that's integrity. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. you're my friend, but I don't believe in what you represent, and I don't believe in it, so therefore I'm not going to endorse you. I I've got no fault with that. I think that's a, the right thing to do. We're, you'd stand about three minutes, Adam. Not, I don't even want to dignify, to be honest with you. I, I know you talked about it in your book, but I don't want to talk about the last thing that a lot of folks remember Ted Williams for wasn't his mm -hmm. his fault after his death. But, you know, basically we're talking about two heroes. I mean, two, mm -hmm. the the top of their game and their respective disciplines. And they they genuinely 
I wouldn't say they were fans of each other, but they just generally admired and respected each other. And that's very, very heartwarming. Yeah. And I think that was the thing that really held this book together was it wasn't that, that, you know, I mentioned that earlier that John Glenn wasn't a fan of Ted Williams, the baseball player. And, and conversely, when Ted Williams was watching John Glenn go to space the first time, he wasn't a fan, although he was, he tells a story about sitting on his in-laws couch, watching it on TV and being really wowed by it and everything. Uh, but exactly, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It was, it was that they really respected each other. And if there were, for a lot of reasons, Ted Williams respected John Glenn for his, his great pilot, you know, his great ability as a pilot and then his great dedication in, in the NASA program. And as much as he was a Republican, he even, you know, said one time he was a great senator, even though he's a Democrat. Um, so I think he, he did have just a, an immense amount of respect for everything he did, even if they didn't agree on things. And John Glenn was the same way. I think the, the quote that really does it for me was, John Glenn was talking about Ted Williams at an event in, in 1988 uh, about that was to honor Ted Williams for his service to the Jimmy Fund, the cancer charity. Uh, and he said, and this is in Boston, so all these fans knew exactly what he was talking about. He said that it, everybody knows that in 1941, Ted Williams hit 406, but for the Marine Corps and the United States of America, he batted 1,000. Mm. And I think that was the thing that, you know, if you're going to boil down their relationship to one simple idea, I think it was that. It was that John Glenn had a tremendous amount of respect for Ted Williams for, for his service to the Korean, to the military and to the, in the Korean War. Adam, um, what, well, I guess what, what first, I want to know, I should ask this at the beginning of the interview, but how did this first come on your radar? Well, I was, uh, it was on Veterans Day a couple of years ago. Um, you know, if you can't go on the internet without people posting pictures these days, and I saw this photo, it's actually a photo that's in the book, uh, of John Glenn and Ted Williams. It's, it's, it's really a great photo because it tells their whole relationship in a real nutshell that Ted Williams is, you know, you can see, imagine that he's sort of yammering on about this mission that they flew with hands in the air, and he's showing one plane coming around here, and he's talking, 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 which Ted Williams did. And John Glenn's kind of just staring there, staring off into space, listening to his friend talk, which is how everybody remembers Ted Williams. Um, and I, I saw this photo, and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, what is? I knew Ted Williams served in the Korean War. I knew a, a good amount of John Glenn from growing up and watching the right stuff. I'm actually from Ohio. So John Glenn was my senator when I was a kid, and I'm a huge baseball history fan, so I knew all about Ted Williams. But when I saw that it said, didn't it, did you know something kind of like, did you know Ted Williams and John Glenn served together in the Korean War uh, in 1953? And uh, my answer was no. So I started reading, and I, I had Ted Williams' autobiography on my bookshelf, and I pulled it off, and I read through it, and I saw exactly what it said, that he knew John Glenn. Um, and it was just amazing. And once I started reading through more and more, uh, I, I realized it was it was a really compelling story. Well, Adam, thank you so much for sharing that story with us, and I encourage folks to get a copy of the book, The Wingman. You can find that at adamlazarusbooks.com. Adam, again, thanks for spending your time with our listeners today. Thanks so much for having me. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Over 500 podcasts can be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. Listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.